We're back to being a normal country. We're back to being a country. The British Dream Podcast. Join us. Powerful people. As we launch our despicable acts like these. And the sickening and barbaric politics. What I hate about this is that it's so violent. When the next phase of this disaster comes, they will come for you. Hi, we're back in Weatherspoons, flipping the soggy beer mats of this week's politics. Welcome to the British Dream. I'm Simon Childs, Home Affairs Editor at Vice.com. Today I'm joined by Sharon Kale of Broadley and Angus Harrison of Vice, who just piled out of an Uber just in time to be here. Today we're chatting soft coups, soft employment laws and soft fascism. It's a bit early for political speech, I'm sorry. <laughs> but but in, that, in that real world it's getting darker, as we know. Um, so Angus, you found one Twitter exchange that you thought told this whole story. Yes, yeah, so this started with Ken Loach's article for The Guardian that was basically saying that the current situation the Labour Party finds itself in isn't Jeremy Corbyn's fault, it's actually the fault of Blair and Brown and the new Labour government and the situation that they left the Labour Party in when they left office. Uh, this was then shared on Twitter by Paul Mason, who then was sort of, you know, very heartily agreeing with it and saying, like, this is all the fault, this is Labour careerists, um, and this is an embarrassment to their um, political careerism. Um, but then there was this amazing, like, 24-tweet thread that kind of came underneath it. This guy called Hammy, I think his name was. It's probably not his actual name. It's Twitter, where everyone has a weird name. He then posted this 24-tweet thread, essentially detailing all of New Labour's achievements while they were in power, so all their kind of domestic uh, achievements. So everything from the national minimum wage, uh, the Human Rights Act, banning cluster bombs, they like cut long-term youth employment by 75%. So there's like all these things, and there's like, obviously that's like four examples, but it just goes on and on and on. And it makes for really sober reading. It's it's kind of strangely like, when it's laid out for you like that in such like raw form, it's kind of impossible to argue that they did some great things when they were in power and shouldn't be written off as easily as they are by people on the left. The political system that we have at the moment is so different from where it was 20 years ago. It's so much more fragmented. Um, and yeah, we can talk about how great things were in 1997, but it doesn't really change where we are right now. So I wonder what the point of all this uh, dredging up of the past is for. But I'm not necessarily David Miliband's biggest fan, but he said something really interesting recently where he was saying that centre-left politics aren't just about compromise and trying to find some sort of vague neoliberal middle ground, but that actually they do provide really functional solutions to the problems faced by society. And I do think that this massive list of all the things New Labour did actually just kind of shows the disparity between Corbyn, who, as far as I know, really doesn't offer much in the way of concrete policies. Like, I don't actually know what many of his policies are, versus this New Labour government that everyone loves to write off as just being about career politics and, you know, kind of Toryism and neoliberalism, whereas actually they're the ones who, when you look at it, you can literally see all the things that they did and all the very very clear policies they had on all these different corners of society. Part of the reason that we're in the mess that we're in right now with the Labour Party is attributable to the fact that, you know, going into the 2010 election, everybody was so ashamed of of the sort of new Labour approach. You know, you had 
Ed Balls apologizing for the financial crisis when arguably it wasn't his fault. You had this like narrative that the Tories put out that New Labour like crashed the car and destroyed the economy and that as a result of that people were really ashamed in a way to be associated with New Labour and all of the achievements that they had from that period, which is now why people view Labour as incompetent in many ways, because we didn't really accept actually that we had quite a strong domestic legacy in many ways. We need to be better at saying here are all the good things that New Labour did and here are all the shit things that they did. Now let's try and do something that kind of takes the good things and does those as opposed to a Labour Party that kind of hates some of the best things it did while in power. Yeah, and also, like, you know, you mentioned the people of Stoke, but they didn't vote UKIP in the end in the recent by-election. Like, they did they did remain Labour. So, you know, there is still some legacy of, of a pro-Labour feeling there. There must be, otherwise we would have the horrible nuttle in Parliament right now. Well, I think the legacy of New Labour in Stoke is people like Tristan Hunt, who got parachuted in, a party that completely became this weird, like, think tank in Westminster like very much destroyed its base yeah like surely Tristan Hunt is the legacy and the fact that he left to, to be director of the VNA I think that sometimes there's a danger of treating places like Stoke with again this kind of homogenized thing of like oh if we're not careful they'll all go to UKIP as though they're all really just like do you know what I mean? Is that they're all about to leave the door and we've just got to catch them just before they get there whereas they have got a lot more agency over that and I also think that their loyalty slash fear is possibly more prevalent we think. I actually think that UKIP aren't necessarily as attractive to a lot of people as we maybe think they are, just because they come from like a lesser economic kind of position. They're not necessarily like champing at the bit to vote for UKIP. Um, so where, where do you think Labour actually goes from here though? I feel like we're seeing so much fragmentation and, and infighting in Labour, particularly now that you've got momentum um, champing at the bit. I think what we need is, unfortunately for some figure like David Miliband to fly across the channel like Superman and maybe rescue things and that's not an approach that I actually particularly welcome but realistically that's the only way that you're going to get that unifying figure that can actually lead the party into a victorious general election. I mean one thing I thought about this thread is, is such like lesser of two evilsism. It's like New Labour banned cluster bombs. Cool. Like they also let, like started a war that killed hundreds of thousands in Iraq. Also um, the Climate Change Act like, we, we've not beat climate change, and we're not going to, and the climate change is never going to solve that. Like, it's like when I'm, like, drowning, I'm not going to be really pleased for a piece of legislation that didn't lead, like, solve any of these problems. Yeah, but then this is, again, what I was kind of saying about the the nuance, like, thing. You've just got to be able to, like, take certain things. I kind of feel like what we need to do now is, like, look at the Corbyn situation, look at Jeremy Corbyn, look at Tony Blair, and then try and bring somebody through now who can kind of take the idealism of the left with the pragmatism of the centre and push for some kind of new third way. <laughs> a third way maybe even a fourth I don't fourth know. way I guess that's another bone I have to pick with this list is that like I could give you a list of good stuff that like bad people did in their lives and in the same way like you can you can easily come up with a massive list of terrible terrible things that New Labour did that we should not be applauding that we should want to like oppose and this whole like mode of politics, like oh, we should be pragmatic. Like, yeah, New Labour built like Yarswood Detention Centre, which now there are like mass protests against. Um, you really have to question whether these people are part of a movement that is worth supporting. Because I suppose both New Labour and Jeremy Corbyn both now really represent old ideas. They're both old ideas, and I think the, this thread to me just more pointed out the ludicrousness of writing articles that are saying 
describing the sins of Blair and Brown as being responsible for the situation the country is now in, whereas actually if it hadn't been for them, the situation would have been a whole lot worse. Final question. If you're an Uber driver in London and Corbyn got in the back of your car, how many stars would you give him and what comment? I mean, he wouldn't be in my Uber, wouldn't he? would he? Because he'd always be cycling. Okay, if he's putting his bike in my Uber, I'm probably going to deduct some stars because that's going to fuck up the seats. One and a half? I reckon at the start of the journey... I'd have given him a confident five stars because of the promise when he got in the car. But then as the journey went on, I'd have gradually realised that actually he didn't really know where he wanted to go. So then my rating for him would have slipped down to one star by the end of our time together. At Uber, we like to say there are four dimensions of magic. Order! Delivery, Uber, Hermes Deliveries. Right now, as many as five million people are earning from the gig economy. But it's not always the exciting world of carefree flexibility that we're led to believe. All too often, it's a world of insecurity with people who feel like workers being treated like they're self-employed and getting a few of the protections that people who officially have jobs are entitled to. This week, Uber CEO Travis Kalanick was shown arguing about how he treats his drivers in one of his own taxis. Uh, there it is, there it is. So we can just pull up the side right here. Right here? Yeah. All right, perfect. Thank you. Thank you. you have Thank a good so one. Much. Thank you. Good to see you, man. Thank you. Good to see you, too. I don't know if you remember me, but it's fine. The uh, the new people, the old people, 2010. Yeah. Super legit. Yeah, super legit, but we got, we got 15 uh, So, we are reducing the number of black cars on the system over the next six months. Yeah, it's good. I mean, you probably saw some emails. I saw the email starts in May. It's, yeah. it's all about the rating. But you, you're raising the standards and you're dropping the prices. We're not dropping the price on black. But in general, the whole price... Yeah, we have to. We have competitors. Otherwise, we've got a business. Competitors, man. You had the business model in your hands. You could have the prices you want, but you choose to buy everybody a right. We, we started high-end. We didn't go low-end because we wanted to. We went low-end because we had to. I have guys working on Lux, which will be... 50 to 75% more expensive than but black. But people are not trusting you anymore. Do you think people will buy cars anymore? Unless they buy them through Europe. I bankrupt because of you. Look. Yes, oh, yes, yes. You, know you keep changing every day. What have you I... Keep, you a, keep changing every day. Hold on a second. What have I changed about black? You dropped the prices. On on black? Yes, you did. Bullshit. We started with $20. Bullshit. We started with $20. You know what? How much is the mile now? $275? You know what? What? Some people don't like to take responsibility for I their own shit. They blame everything but in their life on somebody else. But why you email for town card? Good luck. Good luck to you too, but I know you don't gonna go far. Now we're gonna hear from Jack and Joe, both the delivery riders, both of them are part of the IWW union, and they both claim that them and some of their colleagues got fewer hours because delivery found out about their union activity. The union has set up a hardship fund for the riders because they were so skint having lost out on their hours. Delivery kind of present the people who, who work for them as all students doing a little bit of flexible extra work. But the reality, the reality is that there's a whole group of people, maybe 40 or so, that delivery rely on to run a consistent service and they're trying to make a living off it and work full time. Around Christmas time, we started trying to organise and we joined the IWW union and started trying to think of strategies to try and protect our pay and try and improve our, our rights as workers. Delivery found out about that at the start of February. Yeah. And they've 
they've targeted seven of us, seven of the most active riders, and basically slashed all of our hours. So, How did they find out? Uh, we had a WhatsApp group with quite a few people on, and one of the members of that WhatsApp group got a bit pissed off and basically went and showed it to the management. And then next thing you know, like within a week, two of our riders had their contracts terminated and another five of us had all their hours cut, like to basically nothing. I've got zero hours now. I've gone from having 45 guaranteed hours a week to zero. Wow. That's plunged a few of us into some financial hardship. Joe, who are you going to talk to after me? He was on over 50 hours a week and his, I think his were cut to six. There was already a relatively high level of insecurity to it in that like it was completely reliant on how busy how busy it was, whether you earned six pounds or ten pounds, if you know what I mean, per hour. But now I don't even have that security of working those hours and earning that hourly rate. We created a hardship fund on Friday um, to allow us to carry on, you know, fighting for better workers' rights and proper treatment of their workers and our reinstatement. And since then, there's been an amazing, amazing level of feedback across social media. And you said someone's been reinstated? Yeah, so yesterday, one of the seven received a call from head office and basically were told that it was their termination was all a massive mistake and that, and that their contract would be reinstated at some point this week. What do you think that this can tell us about the gig economy more generally? They sell you the job based on flexibility and control, controlling yourself, being your own boss. But really, really what these jobs are involve a lot of control from what is really an employer or at least the workers for them. And they are able to get away with bad pay and very little flexibility um, under the guise of self-employment. And I think it shows that actually delivery rely on some pretty full-time people and those people, and when we threaten, we take action there to listen. Hello. Hi, is that Joe? Uh, yes, it is, yeah. Hey, Joe, it's Simon from Vice. How are you? Hi, mate. Yeah, I'm all right. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. We started yeah, joining uh, the, a union called the IWW and basically letting people know that there was a pay system we were told was coming in uh, at an undisclosed time. Just in case, if it's not the job for you, if you're not prepared for that kind of a pay system coming in, then you you might not want to stick around as well. I'd say nearly every single rider is, at, very, at the very least, very sympathetic. They might not be willing to become a big figurehead or join the union or do something like that, but they're all very sympathetic to something needs to be done. I was working 50-plus hours at the time, and my hours got changed overnight to eight. So literally overnight, like one day you had... Yeah. It was done. I think it was done. I think it was done on a Friday, and then it got. It was done on a Friday night, and then all my shifts for that next week were removed. So you actually had the shift sorted, and they were taken away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're done two weeks in advance, and the shifts that I had were removed, and then all of my regular shifts that would normally appear, uh, I had my regular shifts removed as well. And what does that mean for you in terms of finances? I'm not able to pay my rent this month. Um, I've also not been able to pay my council tax bill. Um, I've had to borrow money for my phone bill. Um, I would have had to just let that disconnect, but I need it if I need to. If I want to work for delivery, I need to have my phone connected. So yeah. I've had to borrow money to pay for that. Um, and yeah, I haven't done a food shop in quite a while either. 
what's been the reaction amongst the riders to this? There's been a big kind of uproar with people very sympathetic towards it because the riders that have their hours docked were the, some of the most regular riders that kind of knew everyone. So overall, people are really upset and angry about it. And obviously, the riders that have had their hours removed, they're all in very similar situations to me as well. So they've got their heads in their hands. And the reaction is that something has to be done now very quickly. Letters have been written to management and um, and basically the union have been contacted to support. There's been a big fundraiser through donations basically online to try and get money raised for people that have been affected by this. I spoke to management when my hours were cut. And when I asked what had changed, I was told that uh, they're not willing to disclose. He said, I'm not willing to say why. Treating your workers like this cannot be sustainable. So spells really badly for workplace and, and employers in general. It's a really bad kind of behavior to be showing the world. Yeah. It's okay to exploit your workers. It's okay to fire them when they're uh, when they're unhappy instead of trying to discuss it with them. And it's okay to basically remove the shifts on a whim. So when I called Delivery about this, um, they gave me the following statement. We have a strong relationship with our riders and are proud to offer them flexible, well-paid work that they want and which we know is overwhelmingly valued both in Leeds and up and down the country. In recent days, a small number of riders in Leeds reported behaviour which is completely out of line with our company policies. We have zero tolerance for the behaviour described and have taken strong and immediate action to ensure our clear internal policies are adhered to at all times. We are determined to maintain at all times an excellent relationship with our riders, as we know that by working together we will ensure Deliveroo continues to support restaurants, offer great opportunities to riders and a great service to our customers. Um, we're going to chat about the gig economy, but first of all we should just sort out what it is. Sharon? Like basically it's a way of working where um, people have temporary jobs or they do separate pieces of work rather than working for an employer for like a set amount of hours a week. So, you know, before you might have been a cleaner employed by a cleaning agency and they'll have paid you 40 hours work a week like, and you'd have a contract and sick leave and, and stuff like that. Whereas now, you know, you might work for a company like Handy and you're still a cleaner, but you're technically self-employed and there's no amount of fixed hours that you get a week. So basically you just have zero workplace rights and zero uh, guarantees on how much you're gonna be earning from week to week which is obviously quite stressful for these people. Um, and let's start with that video of the CEO of Uber. Um, it's quite interesting. Sharon, what do you make of it? So I thought what was really interesting about that video is that the whole structure of Uber and of all these other companies is basically set up so that the people who work for them never really get to talk to management. You know, they're all defined as self-employed or whatever, when actually they're not. They are being employed by Uber. And as a result, they never really get an opportunity as an Uber driver to complain about their conditions or their work or their pay. Um, so the video is really interesting for me because it was a really rare example of somebody actually having a chance, an Uber driver actually having a chance to confront the most senior Uber exec there is and talk about how the decentralized, you know, like lack of management structure has made his life so difficult and how hard it is for him working as an Uber driver for Uber, but never really having any opportunity to rent that. You know, he was lucky in that this guy got into his car at that time and he was able to say how shit it is working for them. But actually, he's kind of speaking for a silent majority of Uber drivers who never get an opportunity to talk about how terrible things are or when they do complain, maybe they'll end up having their hours docked or their pay docked or who knows what. The CEO's apology was really interesting. 
um, it was quite sort of cringing and shamefaced. He said, to say I'm ashamed is an extreme understatement. My job as your leader is to lead, and that starts with behaving in a way that makes us all proud. That's not what I did, and it cannot be explained away. And then he goes, it's clear that this video is a reflection of me, and the criticism we've received is a stark reminder that I must fundamentally change as a leader and grow up. So he's like turning it on himself, but again, like the complaint was about the constantly changing and precarious nature of driving with Uber. It's not about the guy being a dickhead, like he was being a dickhead, but that's not really what it's about or what the guy was initially complaining about. Such a really good get out, isn't it? It's like if someone says like your entire business model is like rotten, you just go like, no guys, I just have some issues at home right now. Yeah. Like I can't really yeah. like, that's why you're not getting paid. That's why you keep losing hours actually. This is my fault. Hang on, I'm just gonna go for some therapy and then everything will be fine. It's PR bullshit. Like saying saying that, you know, I'm a dick, I'm sorry about this, but actually Uber's a great company is essentially what he's doing. But also he's basically the true face of Uber. Like him slamming the door and that Uber driver who's gone bankrupt trying to work for them is literally everything that is shitty about companies like that and how little they care about the people they employ. So what confuses me a little bit about this with these guys working for Deliveroo, to what extent are they self-employed and to what extent do they work for Deliveroo? Where's the, where does the line get drawn there? Who are they employed by? I mean, yeah, I guess that's exactly the problem. Um, they are technically self-employed, but typically trade unions would argue that del delivery riders get treated like workers. They don't really have the sort of autonomy you'd expect if you were a freelancer in a sort of media job or something. So is the ideal solution here, like long-term, that this is seen more as an employment situation and these kind of freelance workers are actually made employees in a contractual sense by these companies? Is that what we want to achieve? Uh, there have been certain legal cases in the last year with some Uber drivers, I believe, and also some delivery drivers about exactly that. Cases with some Uber drivers set a sort of precedent where it was ruled that, you know, really they are employees. Like, clearly they're treated like employees, they act like employees. And that could maybe have set a precedent for the rest of the gig economy. But the fact is that at the moment, still, a lot of people are working in a gig economy um, essentially, it's like the entirety of their income, but it's as insecure as if they were just picking up like an extra shift here and there because they wanted to. Um, I've been wondering about this though. Like, if if this Uber CEO Travis got into the back of your taxi, how many uh, stars would you give him, and, and what comment would you give him? I think I'd probably just ask him for cash, to be honest. Um, I actually know for a fact that the driver did give him one star. Um, That's sick. Yeah, he took his opportunity to make his displeasure felt. I'd want to do the protest one star, but then I have five stars currently on Uber, and I really don't want anything to damage that. It's very important for my personal brand, so um, I feel like I wouldn't uh, want to jeopardise that at all, so I'd give him five stars as well. So it'd be a, it would be a grand total of ten for myself and Simon. I don't think I've ever met anyone with a five star rating. Un five. Untouched. That's genuinely. incredible. Yeah, wow. thanks, I know. Yeah. <laughs> How have you got a five star rating? Um, just Is that like a, a trick? winning combination of well-placed jokes and <laughs> courtesy You're just can we just point out the fact that the Weatherspoons barman just walked past us and told us that he had a 4.9 rating yeah which is <laughs> close but no cigar I'm afraid so yeah far. yeah <laughs> his job in the referendum was to neutralize the effect of UKIP try to calm down smell the coffee it's time to have a proper divorce and behave like an adult 
Former UKIP leader Nigel Farage accused the party's only MP, Douglas Carswell, of preventing UKIP from becoming a radical anti-immigration party. He also called Carswell a Tory party posh boy and reckons he should be given the cold shoulder. I mean, I personally feel like UKIP pretends to be anti-establishment so that they can get into the establishment. Like, all they want is to be MPs or peers. I mean, I think Nigel Farage has tried to be an MP like seven times or something. If that doesn't make you establishment, I'm not really sure what does. Then again, I guess there's this really confused idea of what the establishment is, because I think a lot of what they consider establishment is the liberal media and the political correct uh, kind of ideals of the previous governments. So there's this kind of strange situation we've ended up in now where patriotism is really anti-establishment and, yeah, like loving the Queen is suddenly this kind of radical move. Yeah, lo loving the, the existence of life as it currently is yeah. is like railing against... <laughs> reality as it stands yeah and i feel like the literally the biggest example of how ukip are really an establishment party pretend to be an anti-establishment party is all of this stuff that's been going on with nigel farge um supposedly being denied a peerage which has made him extremely angry i think is that not right Angus? yeah essentially what worries me actually about farage saying he wants ukip to be more radically anti-immigrant is that the kind of rhetoric that's used around immigration now is is shifting uh, and it's shifted in, in sort of quite clever ways. You can see the same sorts of things happening with Trump and the travel ban is that there's a way of presenting those anti-immigration arguments that kind of sound, if you don't probe them at all, they kind of sound like common sense or that kind of way of marketing anti-immigration as though it's like vetting and kind of points-based systems and like just making sure, you know, this is just like the kind of measures we have to take given the kind of global situation at the moment these are just the obvious things to do so what worries me actually about farage saying that he wants to be more radical is that 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 probably won't mean more godfrey bloom-esque gaffes that'll probably just mean more common sense and for those who can't see me i'm doing inverted comma thingies with my hands i'm not agreeing with that this is common sense but these more kind of sweeping common sense uh, approaches to border controls that's kind of what concerns me and it's not just the brexit but the rise of marine le pen in france gert wielders in the netherlands the pushback we're seeing in sweden and germany against unchecked immigration there's a movement afoot melissa interesting Thanks, Sharon and Angus. Uh, when I invited you, I didn't expect you love Nigel Farage so much, but whatever. The British Dream was produced by Chica Ayres and Sam Bonham at Rethink Audio. See you again next week. Stay positive. What happened in 2016 is the beginning of a great global revolution.